The Accutron Show. Accutron. It's not a timepiece. It's a conversation piece. With your host, Bill McCuddy, and contributors Scott Alexander and David Graver. The uh, sudden expansion of gases, the, the explosion, <laughs> uh, just blew the doors open. Glass rained down on us, and we came walking around the corner and looked up, and there were like 30-foot flames coming out of the cupolas. The voice you heard at the top of the show was today's guest, founder of Tuttletown Spirits, home of Hudson Whiskey, Ralph Arenzo. He's here to talk about how opening the first New York distillery since Prohibition has changed the game, and he brought a little something for us to try. But first, it's me, Bill McCuddy, along with culture writer Scott Alexander and editor David Graber. We're discussing the evolution of whiskey culture in America and the rise of niche distilleries. All that and more on this episode of The Accutron Show. Stay tuned. David, what happened to spirits? They used to be just vodka, and now we're drinking everything brown. Actually, vodka took down whiskey. <laughs> in the eight, in there the was eight, like was, a bloody battle. It was the, a bloody battle that vodka won. Tom and Cruise was involved. <laughs> since then, it's been a slow death for vodka and the clear spirits. But because well, there's more death. I mean, vodka's still out there, but there's been a rise of a lot of other stuff. I definitely agree. With regard to pop culture, whiskey's what's in hand. I really do feel that way. Where did that come from? Because every generation revolts against what their parents did, and and our parents drank scotch like till it was coming out of their ears. Well, maybe in my house. I don't mean to. My parents drank vodka. Yeah. But, oh, oh, really? But scotch, really I think, is still viewed that way a lot. I mean, certainly a lot of scotch drinkers out there, but bourbon seems to be the category. Certainly in the 90s and definitely in the aughts. You had this big upsurge of bourbon, like small cask. And it was actually the big distillers that started this thing. Beam Brands came out with, you know, Knob Creek and uh, all their various other yeah. offshoots. The Jack and Coke Basil is Hayden's. actually what pioneered, like, whiskey's reemergence into, like, the drinking scene. It was an easy-to-drink, quick cocktail. Well, people That's underestimate wild. Coca-Cola. That's true. Good old-fashioned Coca-Cola is a highly sophisticated mixer. People, people underestimate it because it is, <laughs> look, it's this mass market. It's, it's as McDonald's as a, as a thing could be. But if you look you can at actually go to flavor, McDonald's, go to a drive through You can make a cola beverage. You can get a cola at McDonald's and dump a little, uh, <laughs> little whiskey in that. I'm just saying it's got actual subtlety. It's actually a very good, high-quality mixture. Today, using Coca-Cola syrup, if it didn't exist... It will be being used by high-end bartenders. You know, we were talking about how cheap is where everything gets started. And I have to tell you, the first serious hangover I had was from a fifth of Jack Daniels. With a friend? In, no, I was, was in high school. Uh, Shelly Whalen dumped me. and oh, uh, Shelly. If she's listening. <laughs> no taste uh, on Shelly. Oh, my God. <laughs> so I, perhaps that's the opposite for me. And the, the first time I ever got truly hammered was on tequila. And I said, I will never return to this spirit. <laughs> <laughs> moved on to whiskey and then fell in love with whiskey because it coincided with this reemergence. This whiskey will never hurt me. <laughs> not, not like that off of Shelly. <laughs> Thank you. Um, tequila, back to that now, though, David? Have we have we walked back yes, into the Yes, because the tequila industry the has Mexican water. And also the tequila you were probably drinking was probably not the best. It was garbage. Tequila, right, exactly. So you start, you, you finally get some... I was drinking Jose Cuervo the first uh, 10 years I was drinking tequila, and then someone was like, you should try this tequila. I was like, oh, oh. That's what tequila is. But yeah, the first right. whiskey I drank was Jack Daniels. And it's a funny relationship I have with it because it was hard to drink it at first. And I drank it because my friend used to go to this bar. He used to sit and drink it on ice. And he was like, it took me 10 times until I could drink this and not look uncool. That was how he talked you into it? 
Well, he was like, he's like, just try this. It, it's fun to drink and it's fun to feel like I, I was. I felt like I was putting on my dad's clothes when I was in this bar. But first. you said on the and rocks, was that a sipping experience for you, or were you guys it was, doing them like shots? Like, it took it took a few times. No, no, we were sip. We we're drinking Jack Daniels on the rocks, but and it took a and it's strong and it took a little while. But then I got that down and that once you can drink Jack Daniels on the rocks, you can drink anything, anything. on the rocks. I got guys who only still drink it. And right. you can give them Woodford. Well, you can give them. You can give them Sinatra. That's right. You know. I do think there's also been a, a tremendous advancement in education around what whiskey is, what whiskey can be, differentiation between oak and smoke, bourbon, rye, all of the right. categories, and people can find their place now. And they want to know. I mean, consumers always to, want to more. They want more information. If you tell them I like something, and you say, "Well, but do you like it as much as this? Because this has this and this and this." And they go, oh, no, I'll try that. So I think that brands have grown into making it a luxury experience where before it was just about getting a buzz. Well, the other nice thing about whiskey is there's a number on the side of the bottle that tells you how strong it is. Like, there's literally that number. And if it's an 80, you're kind of at the bottom of the range. And there's some bourbons that go up to 126. I think Booker's is 128 or something like that. You know, 128 proof. That will take the top of your head off. Uh, that will light on fire. There's also a really easy way to decode the flavors inside. If you see a bottle and it says tropical notes, you know that it's probably aged in an X-rum barrel. If, if it's smoky, you know that peat has been involved in the maturation process. To feel empowered as a whiskey drinker, it's never been easier than right now. All I know from what you said is I really want to meet this guy, Pete. And I, I, I know for a fact that uh, there was a fire at uh, Hudson that we're going to talk with our guest about that actually infused and informed one of the uh, spirits that they now make. So sometimes accidents turn into marketing opportunities, and that's uh, one of the things we're going to talk about. Fire, both the friend and the foe. <laughs> yeah. How do you gentlemen drink your whiskey? Ice? Water, neat? Well, it depends on the whiskey. It depends how strong it is. If I'm drinking an 80 to 90 proof bourbon, I just put it on the rocks and let the ice do the work. It does want a little water. A lot of people will say like, oh, drink, I drink my scotch. See, I don't, agree, I don't agree with that. Scotch, yes. Bourbon, I totally drink neat. And yeah, and somebody says to me, you should take an eyedropper and just put a splash of water in there. It's going to open it up. And I don't. It's true. I'm sure it is true. It's okay to be wrong, Bill. Yeah, thank you. But seriously, like you don't have to water it down. If it's too watery, that's not going to be good. But what about even just a little bit? It it does help. What do you guys think of these new baseball-sized ice cubes? That's like a hot thing now. They actually actually melt evenly into the liquid. And help you to lengthen the experience with the actual whiskey. I do, but it rolls like a bowling I think, ball I into think my. They're good for ice because what one reason I'm using the ice in a bourbon is because I do want it watered a little bit. With the big cocktail cu- cubes or the big globes, uh, those are very good for cocktails, which are almost not meant to be watered. They're supposed to come out of the cocktail shaker at the right strength. And so I want as little melt as possible. That's when you want a big cube. With the, with the Japanese whiskey category, it is advised to drink upon a round ice cube, to drink with a round ice cube. Really? Just because so of the that's... roundness. Because, because yeah. of the melting ratio with the water as you slowly consume. Uh, you're way too into this. You guys know <laughs> way too much about this. I just It matters. Practice makes perfect though. Yeah, I guess. One of, the, one of the wisest master distillers I ever met said, I make a 50-year-old scotch. If someone wants to serve that with Dr. Pepper, 
Let him drink it with Dr. Pepper. Does it break my heart? Yes, but is there anything wrong about it? No. Yes. So you can... <laughs> no, I totally agree. You said the Japanese are the ones who use the round, giant, the, baseball the size. The Japanese use ice. an E. Are they W-H-I-S-K-Y or S-K-E-Y? Just Y, no E. Okay. And they, they sort of screwed it up for bourbon and scotch in this country, right? In terms of making it more expensive when they decided that it was their thing, too? Well, oh, the Japanese are putting out a premium product. They're taking the utmost care of creation. I do think it's important to talk about the E and the Y and why one whiskey has and one whiskey doesn't. And it all comes back to Scotland. The Japanese adopted their whiskey practices from Scotland. No Y, no Y. Canada adopted their whiskey practices from Scotland. No Y, no Y. The United States, we added the E. We got oh, the really? E, baby. Got That's the America. E. We got the E it's ticket. America. You can't spell whiskey without an E. But also, we had a completely no different sticker reason ever. for getting into the whiskey market. We got a, rum was the original American uh, spirit here. George Washington drank rum. The founding fathers drank rum. Everyone before there were there were rum distilleries in every single port because they were bringing in sugar from the West Indies. They're bringing sugar up. Okay, great. War starts. What did the first thing the British do? Blockade the West Indies. No more sugar coming into the ports. No more rum. <sighs> but what do we got? Babies, we got wheat. Babies, we got corn. We're going <laughs> to so, make... So bye-bye Mai Tai. Bye-bye Mai Tai. <laughs> Hello, Whiskey Sour. That's right. You mentioned Knob Creek and all the big players. We have a small player uh, joining us in the next block who's going to talk about building a brand right here in the state of New York that is all-American and basically started the branding all over again for, opened the for a small batch. for independent distillers in New York. Yeah. And across the country, I feel like they were right at the beginning of a movement that's actually been nationwide. We're talking about Hudson, and we will meet uh, the man who helped build literally the distillery by hand with another person. That is a mind-blowing story, and we'll get to that later. But first, uh, I can't remember the last time before this boom happened that I was a, a bourbon or a scotch guy. It just seemed to creep in all of a sudden. And I think for me, the tipping point was like watermelon vodka or pomegranate <laughs> vodka. Oh, the like, Yeah, or the, yeah. The, the, these were the tipping Carrie points Carrie Bradshaw for... killed it for, for all of us. <laughs> I, I agree, think. the Cosmo. The yeah. Cosmo. I must have been drinking in a couple of different bars than you guys. Because uh, for me, coming up, like coming out of college, Gentleman Jack was just coming out. And, the, and these sort of th these expressions by big distillers that were saying, we're kind of trying to make a move towards quality. And the funny thing that's been happening now is that after all these great moves by the big companies, they started making horrifying moves. Things like Fireball became popular and these other Honey things. Whiskey. Sort of honey whiskey. Honey whiskey. And there was Apple uh, whiskey, Crown Royal Apple and all these other things. And the real movement and the real art is coming from the bottom. It's coming from these indie distillers, which was sort of kicked off a little bit by. But our, the trends always start in the crap, don't they? I mean, for something to be, we talked about Jack and Coke, like that to kick off an entire generation of people drinking brown liquor was sort of the base where you had to start. And then it, and and then as a category grows, people go, well, I I, I want something finer. Actually, a lot of the re a lot of the reemergence coincided with the change from bartender to mixologist. Many of the spirits that are seeping through pop culture come first from bartenders who want to make a good drink and got very experimental and said, we don't need to be using this name brand. I like the flavors from this independent brand and started putting those brands on cocktail menus. David Gravers from Cool Hunting, and he gets to know all of the mixologists in the Manhattan area, probably most of them in Miami. We've actually vetoed the word well. mixology oh, on the site. Oh, that's gone already? Okay. We all did right. so because 
Why can't they're we, bartenders? <laughs> because they're bartenders. And why can't you just elevate the word bartender? Some people use master bartender. I think that's nonsense. <sighs> just say a bartender is someone Good is an artist. Good bartender, bad bartender, yeah, inexperienced Although, bartender. Uh, but let's agree that mixologists, the term at least, put the bad bartenders on notice. And Indeed. like, and, and you would walk it's into also a very pretentious word. I was chased out of uh, the Connaught Hotel in London one time by a guy at nine in the morning who said, "Mr. McCutty, come back. You didn't try my." Those guys are mixologists. You didn't try my Bloody Mary. And literally, it took him like 15 minutes with the celery salt and the grinding. And and that's a thing. I mean, that's a real thing. And I think this move back to quality is why we had mixologists. And I... But I think we can now. I'm happy we can call them bartenders again. We can now, right. We went through, we crossed the Rubicon. (laughs) Now we can. uh, We had the cutesy name for it. Now we're back. Now we can have bars again, not mixo parlors. But now that there are distilleries everywhere, we don't want to run into the same crisis we ran into with craft brewing, where 75% of all craft beer is just garbage. Well, what we may find out in uh, (laughs) the. It's, there's not no garbage in the indie distilling market. I mean, there's a lot of sort of questionable product out there. People know there's money to be made in this market. And so that's that's one of the really tough things when you're when you're faced with a shelf that has Jack Daniels and Jim Beam and then 15 indie brands. Right. Okay. You know Jack Daniels and Jim Beam are going to be good. And those, of those 15 indie brands, maybe 10 of them are maybe even substandard. They have great labels. They have great graphic design. But you don't know what's actually in that bottle. And what happens when those craft brands or those small brands become as big as the big ones? And do they reinvent themselves? One of the things we're going to ask our guest is whether you can get too big too fast in that category. Uh, It's a fascinating discussion. And they brought liquor for us to try. So uh, there's going to be some day drinking as well, all coming up in the next segment. The world runs on Accutron time. Accutron watches since 1960 from New York City to around the world. Uh, well, we've been looking forward to this, and rightfully so. He is, uh, is the founder of the Hudson Whiskey Company, and Ralph Arenzo joins us now. Ralph, thanks for being a part of the Accutron podcast. Thank you for inviting me in. Uh, you're coming every week. Look what you brought. When we said BYOB, we had no idea you'd bring three. Now explain what we're looking at here on the table. Um, I bought our three most popular whiskeys. The first whiskey is Hudson Baby Bourbon. It was our first uh, aged spirit back in 2006. Uh, the second is our Manhattan Rye. Uh, we named it Manhattan Rye to remind everybody that Manhattans are made with rye whiskey. Not Thank bourbon. you. <laughs> Thank you, Ralph. <laughs> Um, and the third bottle. And the third bottle is our uh, maple cask rye. Uh, one day I got a phone call from a fellow out in Western Canada who was making maple syrup, and he wanted to buy some of our used baby bourbon barrels after we filled them, after we emptied them, rather. And so I sent him a few barrels, and he called me back a couple of months later and said uh, he wanted to buy more barrels. Uh, he was aging his maple syrup in our barrels right off the condensers, 155 degrees, right into the barrel, letting it sit for four months producing this fabulous uh, and gently maple, uh, whiskey-flavored maple syrup. And uh, so he wanted more barrels. And um, I said, well, you know what? If, if I send you the barrels, if you when you empty them, if you send them right back to me, then I won't charge you for the barrels. You just pay for the shipping. And he said, yeah, okay. So we started sending them barrels, and they got progressively larger as we were beginning to use larger barrels. Wow. And uh, then we t- teamed up with a fellow in Vermont, uh, Woods, 
makes Woods maple syrup, and he does that now. So he takes the barrels, fills them with maple syrup, let's sit for four months, and then he empties the maple syrup out and pours, sends them right back to us. So this gets into the idea that I think a lot of people think that uh, bourbon is sort of a DOC sort of regulation. They can only be made in Kentucky or something like that. But the definition is something completely different. Can you give us the, the quick definition of bourbon? The, the basic definition without technical terms is that it has to be made of at least 51% corn. It has to be stored, and the word is stored in the rule, not aged. It's stored in a new white, a new charred oak barrel. And uh, there are certain percentage points you can't distill it above, and certain yeah. you can't bottle but below. But new 80%. charred oak—that's what that gets into. So the it's you make you make your bourbon. Part. The baby bourbon goes into new charred oak. Yes. Then you fill it. Then they fill it with maple. They yeah. send it back to you. But so the re- second time you use that barrel, it's not bourbon, correct? That's correct. Except. If you're making a bourbon, according to the rules, and then you finish it in that barrel. You can finish it once it's right. already so been made bourbon instance, in a new barrel. For instance, our Scott's maple, a big fan, Ralph. I don't know if you can tell. <laughs> our maple cask rye, for instance, we can call it rye whiskey because it first starts out as this Manhattan rye. And when we get those barrels back from the from the maple syrup producer, we refill the rye, the maple the maple tinged yeah. oak barrels with our rye whiskey, which is already rye whiskey. Yeah. And then after that, it sits for another three or four months, and then we take it out and... Uh, Categorically, that's why it's a standout. It's you're, There are no additives. You haven't added anything. You've kissed your premium product with a perfect barrel, with a maple syrup barrel. Yes, that's the best way to put it. Uh, we don't add... It's not... You'll see on the label, it doesn't say flavored whiskey. So we're not adding sugar or artificial flavorings to it. Hey, let's back up for a second. How did the bourbon, whiskey, rye, especially rye, nobody had heard of rye. How did you bring this back? Rye was the New York, rye was the original American whiskey. Uh, The Germans brought rye grain over and Maryland, Pennsylvania, and New York, the Southern tier. They were rye producing areas. And then prohibition sort of killed that. And the whole industry moved back down south, rather, uh, after prohibition. And by then, the infrastructure that supported the industry up here was already gone. There were no more coopers. There were no more malt houses. Farmers were not growing barley, which is a necessary ingredient in the process. And so what happened was, and the fee for a permit, a distillery permit in New York after Prohibition was $65,000 up until 2007. In the 40s. Uh, as opposed to? Yeah. I'm sorry? In the 40s, $65,000. Like, like. Yes, 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 consider that. So nobody opened up any distilleries up here. As opposed to the South where it was free yeah, or and 50 bucks? You know where or like, a lot of big distilleries already You just existed. gave Jake? Uh, they, they kept, um, throughout Prohibition, the big distilleries were still making alcohol and putting it away. It was uh-huh. for medicine. Yes, yeah. yes. And, Sold uh, in pharmacies, ask your doctor. Yeah, and ecumenical. <laughs> right. <laughs> if it was sacramental <laughs> spirit. Right. Yeah. Uh, um, we, we think all of our spirits are sacramental. <laughs> um, but let's, why don't I pour some of this out? Yeah, let's, oh, let's, let's do a little oh, tasting. Oh, no, we simply couldn't. <laughs> no, please, a double. The, the baby bourbon came about because, um, let me hand you this. Sure. Baby bourbon came, came about because we had all this corn whiskey around and we needed to get into- Corn sp- whiskey being the white spirit. Well, clear, unaged white spirit. Uh, it was uh, 46% alcohol. Oh, a little more, Bill, please. <laughs> and um, <laughs> we wanted to move on to bourbon, and but most bourbons are a combination of uh, over 51% corn and then rye and barley, malted sure. barley, sometimes wheat. 
And um, we decided we didn't really know how to blend all the grains together. My business partner and I were not, had nothing to do with whiskey or alcohol except to open a bottle and drink too much of it before this, before we built the distillery. No, you were a climber. I was a professional climber. I, I drank beer. <laughs> and you right. guys built this mill We built it from personally, scratch right? You're, yeah. This is like the Property Brothers build a distillery. Yeah. The, only, the, only thing we, the only thing we did not do was drill the well. Uh, and I always tell people if we could have convinced the well driller to rent us his rig, we probably would have tried to do that. Too. And this is because nobody does this anymore or you nobody, couldn't find anybody? Knew anything or? about building a distillery in New York. And, and also the other, there were roadblocks along the way in the, in the process because, for instance, when we went to the state liquor authority to apply for the license, it was the first time in four generations anybody would walked in there and asked for this license. So you had to change the law along the way. Um, after we got our licenses... Uh, we did not, because there were no distilleries in New York, after Prohibition, uh, the Fed broke up the industry into producer, distributor, retailer. If you were one, you couldn't be another. Over the years in New York, the beer and winemakers had gone back to the state and changed the law to allow them to have a tasting room and sell directly to consumers. Ah, the tasting room. And that's what really made a boom in the small brewery business, for instance, if suddenly they could have sort of a beer bar. And But because there were no distilleries, no one had gone back and changed the distillery law. So we were still prohibited from having a tasting room. And so in 2005, when we got our license, I began a two and a half year um, uh, process of getting the law, a new license in place. I started out just trying to get the license that, had, that we got adjusted. Well, Ralph, welcome to our tasting room. And let's, uh, let's toast. Cheers, Ralph. <laughs> the return of rye. And uh, baby bourbon and uh, maple, which I'm dying to try on my pancakes. Uh, mm. But this is this baby is now bourbon. the baby bourbon. This is 100% corn. Oh, baby. So this comes right. So you were saying you had all this extra corn whiskey because you didn't want to blend grain. So you were doing 100% corn. It was. And it, it, at the time, we were doing 100% corn. And we were using uh, naturally derived liquid enzymes to convert starches to sugars. So gluten-free for you uh, health freaks out there. <laughs> well, the fact is everything that's – the TTB says that that's the Tax and Trade Bureau that run, runs alcohol in this country. Uh, they say that if you want to call it gluten-free, you have to test every single batch. Whereas the FDA lists among the ways to remove gluten, distillation. <laughs> so we, we don't claim to be gluten-free. Uh, but I can tell you that gluten is a very heavy thing. It doesn't make it into uh, a well, vapor gluten, gluten can't survive distillation, but if you're in a facility where you have a lot of wheat... Well, actually, this was a point raised at the uh, recent uh, single malt conference we just went to. And uh, one of I, I made that same comment, and he said the same thing you did, which is absolutely true, unless you segregate your grinding and your grain handling process from the distillation process, you can't guarantee it. I or if you're 100% corn. I don't care. This is good. I don't care if there's gluten <laughs> how, in it or not. How do you get to this recipe? If you have no background in alcohol distillation, how do you get to this delicious recipe? Um, it was a variety of happy accidents, actually. Uh, one of them was that we didn't have a device in our process. We couldn't afford a device that separates the liquids from the solids after the cooking process. So beer, beer manufacturers typically and whiskey makers, they typically cook all the grains in the mash, convert all the starches to sugar, and then they drain all the liquid off. Yes. Ralph, you used a word that I want to dig into a little deeper. You used the word craft. What does craft mean in the world of whiskey? It's a 
a debate that it's not only just in whiskey, it's in a lot of different uh, endeavors, uh, the di distance between craft and art, for instance. And uh, in fact, we had a panel discussion that I host at the distillery every quarter. And the, la the first topic we did was art and craft. And we had artists, we had a mathematician, a journalist from Albany, all in, a couple of sculptors and an art critic. And we all talked about that. What is the difference? Mainly, the difference has nothing to do with the amount you make or the scale of it. It has more to do with what you bring to the work. A craft is a utility, has produces a utility item that serves a function, whereas art doesn't have to create a utilitarian item. In fact, artists take utilitarian items like hammers made by craftsmen and they make something else. A painter takes a canvas stretched by a master canvas stretcher and framer and puts and takes all the paints that are made by paint chemists <laughs> and he takes those pieces and puts them all together to create an impression of something. That I'm sure thought. a lot of artists have used Hudson whiskey. What I find fascinating, so much of your story has so many loopholes and so many opportunities that happened because you saw a space and went in there and were able to <laughs> make rye, call it this, make bourbon. So you're doing something uniquely American and so is Accutron. Tell us about the relationship between Accutron and Hudson. Well, we're constantly looking for new ways to do things, to improve our product. And Accutron is, seems to be doing exactly the same thing as an American company. And uh, we, it, from the very beginning, we wanted to do things our way, which is a very American attitude towards business or to making anything. Uh, in fact, when we started, we didn't even uh, hire a chief distiller, a head distiller, master distiller to come in and show us how to make whiskey because all we thought was, Oh, he's just going to show us how to make his whiskey. We want to make our whiskey. And yeah. I think Accutron is doing the same thing. And so- Although uh, they have people who know how to make the watches. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> A lot better <laughs> than They've one before. Um, and so uh, one of the things that we do to set apart some of our product and some of our customers is we have a single barrel program. Most of our whiskeys, when they, like the whiskeys you're tasting now, are the, a collection of different barrels of the same whiskey but each barrel is slightly different one from the, from the other. So they're unique. Uh, but to maintain consistency, we have to sort of blend them together to get to this final flavor profile. It's all the same whiskey, just slightly different ages, perhaps different size barrels. And then they hit this flavor profile. In fact, I often say to people, <clears throat> the only artist on our property is the blender. Everyone else is a craftsman and we're happy about it. Uh, so the idea being that now, now that we our product is well established, we can start experimenting with smaller batches. And we also have enough whiskey put away to say to particular accounts such as Accutron, why don't we make a batch just for you? A craft batch and selected by you for your particular uh, either uh, employees or special guests or anything like that. And so uh, a group of folks from Accutron came up to the distillery and we relayed out six different barrels and they tasted a little bit from each one. And at the end, they, uh, and, and they couldn't talk to each other while they were tasting them. Uh -huh. Bear notes, they each had a score sheet and we did it. It was a very blind tasting type of thing. And uh, at the end, then they had to all decide amongst themselves which barrel to buy. And then, so it's a just between one. us. Did they pick the right one? They always pick the right one. <laughs> it's a 26 gallon barrel, so it produces 144 bottles. 
750 milliliter bottles, which is exactly the size. And so that makes it very special and very unique. It gets a separate, a different color wax on the top and the label is says on it who it's made for. So that's their limited batch. And that's what Accutron has done now with us. And we're, have we, do we know if we've delivered this batch yet? Not yet, but it's still in process. Right. At the end, we'll bottle it all up and deliver it, you know, or, or Accutron will come to us perhaps and pick it up and we'll make a little show of it. If you tell me where it is, oh, they're, they're calling now. Stop telling them about it. They're telling you. Um, this is the CEO of William Grant and Sons. Okay, take that. Take it. <laughs> Jonathan, I'm in the middle of recording a We're live now on the podcast. air with the CEO of... <laughs> I will, thanks. <laughs> We've got him on the line now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Just, I, we were just talking about you. Right. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, that is a program that's been very successful for us over the last couple of years. Uh, we have a lot of uh, very high-end restaurants and bars and cocktail bars uh, that go through that process, some of which are... Uh, chain, you know, chains like Marriott and people like that who buy eight or ten barrels at a time. Um, and um, I believe we produced a batch for Tiffany, and uh, they produced it out for a lot of their special customers. So wow. it's a very unique uh, project. The each because each barrel is different. That is to say, they're not like molded plastic or stamped out in steel. The wood is different in each barrel, and therefore the whiskey coming out of that barrel is different from the one sitting right next to it that went through the same aging process, same temperature changes and everything. So that one barrel is a unique, one-of-a-kind flavor. And customers still want that. And they love it, yes. In fact, after you had a warehouse fire, you you employed barrels that had been charred in that fire to age whiskey for a select release, correct? Uh Almost correct. Almost. <laughs> we had a fire uh, in 2007, I believe it was, or... Anyway, in any case, we had a fire. It was a result of a piece of fixture breaking off the back of a still in the middle of a run. So it was ejecting 70% alcohol vapor into the room for a little while. Fortunately, there was no one in the room. They had just walked down to get something. And uh, the, all the vapor is hot. It rises to the ceiling and then just slowly makes its way down until it hits a light or a fan. And kaboom. And uh, it, we That's were standing, the opening of Backdraft. I think I <laughs> saw was, that movie. It, well, yeah. It was. Well, let me tell you, we were standing right outside. On oh, the, my God. Uh, the stills were on the second no one floor hurt? at the time. No one was hurt. Uh, a lot we, of tears. We had, a lot of crying. We had a lot of <laughs> All that bourbon gone. I would show your <laughs> listeners the picture I have of the fire, but that's a little difficult. <laughs> but um, the whole idea was uh, we were standing below the, below the windows right next to the still, and the... Uh, sudden expansion of gases the, the explosion yeah. uh just blew the doors open glass rained down on us and we came walking around the corner and looked up and there were like 30 foot flames coming out of the cupolas uh fortunately i got that's the picture i have is all those flames don't ask me how i had the composure to actually <laughs> take a picture hold on i've got to yeah. get this hey, where's my phone <laughs> um but there were it was huge and it, then they suddenly went down and it was because we had built cupolas on the roof two of them they had windows all around them, and all the windows were hinged on top and not latched on the bottom for just this purpose. So that if there was a sudden expansion of gases in the room, it would have some place to go, and it wouldn't blow the roof off. And so once those flames died down, we were able to get the fire out pretty quickly, and there was no structural damage. I had just finished filling 100 barrels with whiskey in the room where the still was. And so when the fire was out, None of the barrels had broken. I think one of them broke when a fireman picked it up and it broke all over him. 
He said, I'm going to have a hell of a time explaining this to my wife. <laughs> uh, but he, it, it, that was the only loss we had, but they were all charred. And I said, put them away. So we put them away in the warehouse. And, to, and on the second anniversary of the fire, we released it in a bottle that I had, a bottle with a bright fire engine red wax cap and a black label that was actually a photograph of the charred barrel uh, made into a label. And we called it our double charred whiskey. And uh, that went in no time flat. I, mean, I still have one bottle in, I think, in my cabinet. But yeah. if, you, you, if ever you're in a, a small retail store somewhere around New York, you might stumble on one on the shelf. Buy it. Because after, what happened was I had filled those barrels with a variety of whiskeys. But the fire burned all the labels off. <laughs> so we didn't wow. actually know what was in the barrels like, other than whiskey. And so when we, when we blended them all back together again, we just dumped them all in a big tank. <laughs> and then filtered it and put it in the bottle. And it turned out to be fabulous whiskey, which I could never make again. The only no. artist on the property, Ralph. The only artist on the property. Yeah, that, was a, that particular artist was the fire. Right, exactly. <laughs> never a setback, only a step forward. For yeah, yeah. Uh, Tony always used to call it our happy accidents. You know, we have a series of happy accidents. Well, this is no accident that you've dropped by. Uh, we're thrilled you brought by something to taste as well, and we've enjoyed having you here. Ralph, continued success, and thanks uh, for joining us on the Accutron Podcast. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Gentlemen, I'm drunk. <laughs> You're here. Isn't, Me too. Isn't that the point? <laughs> hey, this was another great podcast. I'm Bill McCuddy along with Scott Alexander. And this is David Graver. And we'll see you next time on the Accutron Show. Thank you for listening to the Accutron Show. To hear all our shows, visit AccutronWatch.com. For upcoming guests as well as behind the scenes action, follow us on Instagram at AccutronWatch. From the 29th floor of the Empire State Building. Until next time, Accutron time. Set your tuning forks.